We started in this 10th verse of the 6th chapter of Ephesians, talking about the strength and the power of God, God's might, because we really need it more than we have ever needed it. As the days grow darker and as some of these conditions are facing us, we need God's strength more than we've ever needed it. We need to understand God's strength. We need to understand how God uses his strength, to what degree God does things and to what degree he gives us the power to do things. That's something that I talked about some last time, and I feel a burden to talk about it some more. I would imagine we'll probably spend this evening still in that same verse. I don't think we'll get past that verse because there's some things that are absolutely critical to understand about God's strength and how he uses it and how he invests it. Those are not necessarily the same things. Sometimes he uses his strength, as I mentioned last time, directly in ways that you don't have any involvement in whatsoever. He just does something that's beyond our capability. And sometimes he gives us strength that he intends us to use for whatever it is he's asking or requiring of us. And the provision of grace that's God's strength that's exercised toward us is also exercised in us, and it's exercised for us, but it's not intended, saints, to be in spite of us or without us. In other words, you just sit there and let God work on you, and you don't have to do anything. That's not how it works. There's some work God will do on us and in us and for us that we can't do, and it's simply outside of our capability, but it's not outside of God's capability. God does exercise his strength and acts for us, as I said, and upon us that we're not involved in at all, but he also invests his strength in us. Going back to that statement in Ephesians 2 that I read here last time, that he would empower us unto good works, that we should walk in them. He gives us the power to do the good works. He gives us the power to walk for him. He gives us the power to live for him. There's some things that might be outside our power, as I said, but he gives us the power to do all the things that are within our power as long as he provides the power. And whatever power he provides, he expects us to use. God will provide the spiritual strength to your legs, but you have to do the walking. He'll provide the spiritual strength to your legs, but you have to walk in the way of righteousness. God isn't going to ferry you down the way of righteousness like a chauffeur, and you just get in the car, and he drives you from the entry point of the door of faith all the way into perfection. That's not how salvation works. God opens the door of faith so you can enter into the way of righteousness, and then he gives you the strength to walk in the way of righteousness. If he didn't, you couldn't. You'd never finish the journey. You'd never have the strength or the constitution to get to the end of that path, but he gives us the strength. And that's where we have to depend on him for that strength. So God exercises his power to do what we could never do. I mentioned this last time. Delivering us from our past sins is something, there's no amount of power or work that we could do to accomplish that. That's something that he did that we could not do. And we could never do anything to deserve, as I said last time as well. There's no works of ours that could have merited that kind of exercise of his power. So that was all inside his purview, but that's not the end of the story. A lot of Christians think that's the end of the story. God made an exercise of power to save you from your past sins, and they confuse being saved from your past sins with being saved from your present condition, being saved from the nature that is causing you to still want to sin, to have desires to sin. They mix that up and have concluded many times, and it's very easy to show by looking at the Scriptures how wrong this is. If you read especially the whole context of Scriptures, but they have confused the idea of being saved from your past sins, which is something entirely outside of your purview. You couldn't do anything except repent and have faith, with being saved to the uttermost, being saved from the condition of sin, not just from the actions that you did that are causing you to be under judgment, but from the condition of sin that if something isn't done to eradicate it, will continue to draw you back into sin, whether in thought or deed or in disposition or otherwise, you'll be a sinful creature. So there's things God did that are outside of our purview, but as I said just a moment ago, that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. He also gives us a measure of his power through the indwelling of his spirit to work to be what we ought to be after he delivers us from what we used to be. We have to work to be what we ought to be after God delivers us from what we used to be. Now, he'll help us. We're not doing it alone, but we have to be involved in that labor. God is not interested in hiring lazy workmen. Jesus used several parables in the Gospels to refer to hiring individuals, hiring laborers. Obviously, there is something God wants us to do that is work, something that God wants us to do that is labor. And it's not just preaching the Gospel. That's important. It's not just evangelizing or supporting the church or being charitable towards our brothers and sisters. It's bigger than just that, even though those are critical things. We have to labor to enter into our rest, as Paul talked about in Hebrews 3 and 4. 
We've got to labor to be more like Jesus. It takes some work to be like Jesus. It isn't easy to be like Jesus. We have to work on being more like Jesus. That's just part of the process. But of course, God's power is at the center of that. Without God's power, you're not going to be like Jesus. This may sound a little strange to you. This might even startle you, though it shouldn't probably startle anyone in this building. I'd imagine it might if I went into another church somewhere in the city and said this. But even Jesus needed the power of God to be like his father. If God had put Jesus in the womb of Mary without the Holy Spirit and let him live his life without the Holy Spirit as an indwelling power, he would not have been able to live a perfect life. Even Jesus needs the power of God. Even Jesus needs the strength of his Father. Now, God invested a massive amount of strength in his Son, and I don't think there's a limit to that strength in terms of Jesus accessing that strength. But I'm going to tell you right now, if he had not invested his strength in his son, his son would have not been able to be perfect, let alone go on to perfection that Paul refers to in Hebrews as well. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 5, talking about the captain of our salvation being made perfect by the things that he suffered. He was made perfect by the things that he suffered, but you're not going to be made perfect by the things that you suffer unless you've got God on your side while you're suffering. If God is not with you through your suffering, if you don't have an access point, a refueling point to the Holy Ghost to give you that strength to get through your suffering, it's not going to make you perfect. It's going to destroy you. Jesus was made perfect through the things that he suffered, but he suffered them with God going alongside him, with God's presence and God's power working in him. Up until the last few moments, and it was only moments, I don't think it was 15 minutes or a half hour or an hour or half a day, A few moments in which God withdrew entirely from his son as he hung on that cross when the weight of the sins of the world fell on his shoulders. And God stepped away just long enough for Jesus to have the full weight. He didn't need to have that full weight for 30 minutes or six hours. He just had to bear that weight. He took it on himself. And you notice it isn't very long between that moment at which he cried out that cry that seems like such a desperate cry. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then a triumphant shout of it is finished came after that, meaning there was a gap in between that feeling of being forsaken and that feeling of triumph that I did what I was called to do. I stood my ground. That's part of what we're going to be talking about with the armor of the Lord. Stand, stand, stand. That's right at the heart of what the armor of the Lord is for, to help you stand. There's a lot of things we'll get hit with in life, whether it's temptations or it's travails or trials or sorrows, great, terrible afflictions and suffering that will cause you to want to fall down on your face and not get back up. It'll cause you to want to get in a fetal position somewhere and not get up again, to fall on your face and just lay there for a while. But God gives us the power to stand. Sometimes it's not just to stay standing. You remember the scripture, it says the righteous falleth seven times. What's the last half of the scripture? But he rises up again. So sometimes the power of God isn't to stay standing. You might get knocked down. There's some things that will happen in your life that are going to knock you flat. There's some things that have happened in my life, things that have happened just in the last few months that knocked me flat. I had to wrap my head around what was going on. Sometimes it may take you years to wrap your head around some things. If something happens, it's so tragic. Or if you're enduring some kind of ongoing long-term suffering, whether emotional or physical or otherwise... But God wants us to stand. He knows there's things that might flatten us out, that might knock us down. I'm not talking about immorality. The righteous man does not fall into immorality. He wouldn't be a righteous man if he did. You notice it says the righteous fall a seven times. Someone that's truly righteous isn't falling into sin. So how are they falling? They're getting knocked down by the conditions of life. They're getting knocked down by the conditions. If you want to get down just to the simple bottom shelf, the conditions of the curse Everything we're dealing with that's causing us sorrow is a condition of the curse. So the righteous sometimes get knocked down. They get knocked down by the conditions of the curse. We use that passage in the Psalms where Jesus, I believe it was Jesus that this is talking about. If you look at the overall context, certainly some of this was talking about Jesus. When it says, my foot had well nigh slipped, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, you look at them and think, look at how well they're doing. And I'm living a life that is entirely the opposite, and I'm suffering all the time and going through one battering after another. And then if you read enough, this is one key about reading through the Psalms, you better read the whole Psalm, because if you don't, you might find yourself in a pretty dark place. There's some dark things in the Psalms. There's some dark places that the psalmists, whether David or others that were writing the Psalms, got to in their state of mind. They were in a dark place. Read on through the whole Psalm. And there's even some Psalms that you better not stop with one. 
There's some psalms that almost the entire psalm is entirely dark, and it doesn't really ever rise. It's just talking about not understanding what they're going through and some of the suffering. So I'll tell you what you do when you hit one of those psalms, just like when you hit these periods in your life. Read another psalm. Keep reading until you find hope, just like you keep serving God until you find hope. That's the thing about going through very challenging conditions. Sometimes there's no hope in the present. There may not be any hope in the near future, but you have to keep moving forward until you come back to a place of hope. Come back to a place of strength. You may lose your strength, but you keep moving forward until you find it again. I may talk about this. We have time tonight, but the end of that 40th chapter of Isaiah is a powerful example of that. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Sometimes that's all you can do is wait. He doesn't show up when you expect him to. He's not providing what you hope he will. All you can do is wait. And maybe your waiting still won't resolve the issue because maybe what you're wanting doesn't get provided by waiting. But eventually, eventually, you'll come to that place where hope will be restored. You know that hope deferred maketh the heart sick, doesn't it? But when the desire comes, it's as a tree of life, the scripture says. Sometimes hope can be deferred for years before the desire comes. Things can batter you back and forth for years before the desire comes. I've gone through some things in my life that were tremendous stresses that some of them went on for years. And I thought, will I ever escape this? I'm not talking about being in some immoral situation. I'm talking about just challenges of life. Will I ever escape this? Is there any way out of this pit that I'm in? Different times in my life, I've been in a pit like different prophets. You know, Jeremiah got thrown down in a pit. They were tired of hearing what he had to say, so they chucked him in a pit, left him in there. Joseph got thrown in a pit, didn't he? And there wasn't even any water in there. You're going to die of thirst far before you'll die of starvation. So that's a pretty miserable thing to be thrown in a pit in a hot part of the world where there's no access to any hydration. Sometimes you get in a pit emotionally and you can't get out. It's too deep for you to climb out. The sides are too sheer for you to climb. There's no handholds. Sometimes all you can do when you're in a situation like that is wait upon the Lord. The strength may not come when you feel like you need it, but it will come. If you wait upon the Lord, eventually the resolution will come in one form or another. So all of that is a backdrop and a prelude to the powerful points behind the necessity for us to put on the armor of the Lord so we can walk and we can work and we can fight our warfare in the power of God's might. You're not going to do it without God's power. You're not going to do it without His might. You've got to know who the source of the power is. That's pretty obvious. You're not going to be put on the armor of the Lord if you don't know the Lord. Because as I said here last time, and I might expand on this a little bit, you aren't strong enough to put it on to begin with anyway. You're going to have to have the Spirit of God to put on the armor of the Lord. You're going to have to have something to strengthen you to enable you to put it on. You might be able to pick up pieces of it and examine it and so on, but to put it on and keep it on is going to take a strength you don't start out with when you first come to the Lord. You're going to have to have the Lord providing the strength for you to even put it on. I said last time, the arm of the Lord is a heavy thing. It'd be nice if it was light, but it's heavy. Almost every one of the pieces and parts of that armor, if you think it through, is a very heavy thing. It might be heavy in an encouraging way, like it's a weighty thing that gives you encouragement. But sometimes it's heavy in a very difficult way. Keeping your faith when you're being battered from every side is a very difficult thing to do. The shield of faith is a very hard thing to raise when you're getting hit. You're taking blows and they're just coming at rapid speed. It's hard to keep the shield of faith up. It's hard to wear the armor of God. Now, I'm not trying to discourage you. With the Lord, all things are possible, saints. It'll be possible to put it on. It'll be possible to keep it on. It'll be possible once you prove it to fight with the strength that God gives you in that armor. So as I said, you got to know who the source of your power is and where that power resides. But you also have to understand that he's given us a portion of his power for the purpose of enabling us to stand and hold the spiritual ground that we've been given. And not just to hold ground in some static sense, but to take ground. Whatever ground we have right now is still not the full victory. We need to take more ground. We need to keep taking ground. The church is not intended to stop taking ground and take a rest, so to speak. We do need to rest once in a while, all of us do. But I'm talking about resting in the spiritual realm. It's just like I said last time, and this is something I'm sure we'll talk about more when we get into the next verse when he says, put on the whole armor of God, all the armor of God. You don't take it off. There's no point at which you're supposed to take the armor of God off. Once you get it on, you're to keep it on. And it will give us the power to stand. It'll give us the power to hold the ground we've been given. It'll give us the power to keep taking more spiritual ground. And the more spiritual ground you take, saints, the more spiritual strength you'll have. That's one of those mysterious things that just works this way. God's the initial provider of strength. But if you use his strength, there's at least two aspects of this. If you use his strength, he'll give you more. 
If you really use it, you use everything He gives you, grace, strength, He'll apply more to your life, more strength, more grace. And the same thing is true in terms of your increase of strength in terms of taking spiritual ground. The more spiritual ground you take, the stronger you'll become. The more ground you take, the more strength God will give you to hold the ground you've taken. And eventually you'll take so much ground in the spiritual realm that nothing can ever take that ground back from you. You'll be past the point in terms of your possession of that strength and that maturity and other things in your spiritual life that anyone can steal it from you. That's what I'm striving for in my own life, saints, and what I've been preaching for 16 years in this assembly, that we need to grow to the point where we are too strong for the world to conquer, too strong for the devil to overcome. Remember what John said regarding some of the fathers in the church and some of the young men? He said, you're strong. You've overcome the wicked one. There's times you just cast the devil down. God gave them that strength to do that, and they used it to stand against the adversary, just like Paul is referring to here in Ephesians 6. So there's a core motivation behind the exhortation that Paul's making here to put on the armor of God. Doing so will allow us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And as I said probably five or six times already, last time and this time, we will not be able to put it on. We will not be able to bear its weight. We will not be able to use it if we're not first given a measure of His power and might to enable us to do so. But if we're strong in the Lord, saints, and in the power of His might, we'll be able to stand not only against the wiles of the devil, we'll be able to stand against any enemy that might subvert our faith, including ourselves. Part of being strong in the Lord and in the power of His might is being strong enough that you don't do something to undermine your own relationship with the Lord. This is going to sound very strange, but we've got to get strong enough that we can't steal our own faith. We've got to get strong enough that we will never sell our birthright. We've got to get strong enough that we will never get ourselves into a situation that would subvert our relationship with the Lord or that would cause us to corrupt that relationship through some kind of a failure of some kind that would cut us off from being in right relationship with God. We have to get stronger. We have to get strong enough, as I said, to wear and use the armor of God. We're going to have to get strong enough that we're keeping it on all the time. I'll give you an example of somebody that was facing a crisis point and his source of strength in that moment when he wasn't sure what tomorrow held was the Lord. In 1 Samuel 30, David and the men that were with him had left the place where their wives and their children and their people that were under their care were staying and went out to fight. And while they went out to fight, there was a raid made by the Amalekites and they took those wives and children and other people captive, took them into slavery. And when David and the men got back, as much as those men seemed like they were all in behind David throughout most of their experience, including putting their lives on the line for him, losing your wife, losing your children, losing the people that were under their protection was something that was too much for those men. And they got so angry, some of them, they threatened to stone David to death. Now, David isn't the one that allowed the Malachites to come, but they were blaming him because David had taken them out to battle. And if he hadn't taken them out to battle, they would have been there and they would have been able to drive back the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, it says, David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But we would be too if our spouse had been taken captive. We didn't know if they were alive or dead. We didn't know what had been done to them. If our daughters or our sons, God in heaven, had been taken captive by some foul and pagan group of individuals, we don't know what could be done to them. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Now, that translation, unfortunately, is nowhere near strong enough for what's actually being said here. The word encouraged is the Hebrew word chadzak. It means to be strong. That means David was made strong in the Lord his God. In other words, he got his mind on the Lord. That's how he encouraged himself. Again, encouraged is not a big enough word. It really is to be made strong. David was feeling pretty weak, but clearly he turned to the Lord and was given strength by the Lord. This is much richer in depth when its root meaning is considered. When you look at the root of the Hebrew word chatzak, it's translated here encouraged. It means to be strong. It literally means to be fastened to something. When David was fearful, he fastened himself to God. There's no safer place. Whatever tomorrow holds, there's no safer place than being anchored in Jesus. There's no safer place than being anchored in God. And so in the midst of David's travail and the fear of his life and the loss of his loved ones, and the loss of these people's loved ones, don't just read that from now on and hear the word encouraged. That is not strong enough. David was made strong by fastening himself to God in the midst of this time of great distress and trouble that he was in. 
First of all, he knew what the Lord's strength was. You can fasten yourself in God by your confidence in him. I know God's strong enough to take care of whatever the problem is. So he knew God could protect and provide for him in any situation he faced. So in that sense, he strengthened himself by his knowledge of God's strength. And second, his strength was the product of being fastened firmly to the rock of ages. You know, if you're fastened to the rock, you're not going to be able to be moved. It's that fastening point, that connection between you and God. And I'll tell you why it's strong. Because anybody that reaches out to God longing for that place of connection with Him, that fastening point, that anchor point in the rock of ages, God is not going to leave you reaching for Him. But if you reach out for Him, there is a place where you can anchor yourself in the rock of ages. And if you do fully give yourself to that anchor point, I'm talking about having total trust and faith in the one you're anchored to, He will never let go of you. If you anchor yourself to Him, He's never going to let that anchor pull loose on His part. There's nothing that'll happen in God that'll cause your anchor to slip. Like, I've anchored myself to the Lord, but He just keeps moving around and my anchor keeps slipping. Let me tell you something. The only way your anchor in Jesus or in God will ever slip is if you move. You anchor yourself into the rock of ages that cannot be moved. And as long as you don't move from that relationship, you cannot be moved. Nothing will loose that anchor. So thank God. So the armor of the Lord consists of what you might call the, we don't use this word very often, but it struck me just now, the accoutrements. Those are the pieces and parts that make up something that enable us to remain steadfast in our relationship with God, no matter what conditions or what conflicts may challenge that relationship or whatever waves might crash against it. There's a lot of waves that can crash against you when you're trying to hold on to God, when you're trying to hold on to your integrity, when you're trying to hold on to your faith. There's waves of things that can tempt you that sometimes are far more powerful than any temptation to do a sin. It is a temptation to lose trust in God, a temptation to lose your love for God. Times of sorrow and suffering and chaos and confusion and other distresses is so critical that we keep anchored into the strength that is bigger than our own. I think I mentioned this last time, these two phrases, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, some believe might be referring to the same thing. It's just a repetitive parallelism. In Hebrew, told you this, I'm sure, many times through the years, but in Hebrew language, and I might have mentioned it last time, there are a lot of parallelisms, especially in languages poetic like the Psalms or some prophetic passages where there's a real poetic type statement made. They repeat something sometimes twice. It's really talking about the same thing. It's just repeated twice. I'm not sure that's the case here. There's a lot of scholars who believe this is just parallelism, meaning being strong in the Lord equates to being strong in the power of his might, which would be true. But I do think there might be two sides of this, and I've been talking about them all along, that there might be a distinction between being strong in the Lord and the power of his might in the sense that one is related to his exercise of strength, the strength he exercises directly. And he exercises, again, outside of our purview, we're not involved in. And the other might be referring to the strength that he gives us to empower us to labor in his kingdom and to fight the good fight of faith that Paul encouraged Timothy to fight. Both letters he referred to that, didn't he? Told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, and then repeated it. And then when he gets down to the end of his last statements to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought a good fight. God intends us to fight a good fight. And the only way you're going to fight a good fight is if you have the right armor on. You're going to fight a pretty terrible fight if you don't. It'll be terrible for you because you're going to get beat up pretty badly and eventually lose your life if you try to fight this world and the troubles of this world and the sorrows of this world and the conditions of the curse, let alone the people that are your enemies in the spiritual realm, whether natural or spiritual. You're not going to survive that fight if you're trying to fight it without the armor of God. It won't be a good fight at all. It'll be a terrible fight. It'll be terrible in terms of its results because you'll get beat up or severely injured and eventually you will get killed. Or it'll be a bad fight in the sense that you're going to make a mess of it and you're not going to defeat your enemy at all. But you've got to fight a good fight. And the only way to fight a good fight is to have the right armor on, to have the right armaments, receiving power from the one who can enable you and empower you to fight a good fight. So whether it's intended by the language of this passage or not, there is a distinction between God's use of his strength and his intent for us to use the strength he gives us. And you see that all throughout the scripture. God's a source of the strength that we need to stand. And at times, he's even the sole power that exercises that strength to accomplish his purpose in our lives. But saints, God also provides power to us that he intends us to use to work and to wage war with. Not going to do all of it for us. 
So we can't do it without him. We can't do it without the strength that he provides. But when he provides that strength to us, we're expected to use it productively. So being strong in the Lord refers to our strength not only being found in him as its source, but realizing that he's the only sanctuary of our strength. He's the one where we get our strength from, but being in him is the best way to be strong. Those aren't quite the same thing. You can get strength from the Lord, but you need to be in the Lord too. There's no stronger place you can be in than in that sanctuary that is being in the Lord. And when we're in him, we're in a place of security and strength that can't be overcome by any enemy. And it's from within that storehouse of his strength that we're given the strength to stand for him as long as we abide in him. Ephesians is saturated with this phrase, whether referring to God or Christ. And the majority of time is in Ephesians, it's referring to Christ. Talking about being in him, in Christ, in the Lord. You need to understand what it means to be in him and to understand not only that he's the reservoir, as I said, of our strength, but our relationship with him is the key to opening the floodgate of that reservoir. If you're not in a relationship with him, you can't expect him to provide strength to you. You can't expect to feel his spirit. If you're not in a right relationship with him, it's going to undermine the connection between his spirit and you. I believe it's about the Holy Spirit, though the writer might have been thinking of something else when he wrote it. The 87th Psalm, the seventh verse, when it says, all my springs are in thee. That's talking about springs of water. Well, you might say that that just means God provided water sources for whoever wrote that psalm. I think it's much deeper than that. All our springs, all those places where we can find access to the Holy Spirit are in him. And as long as we stay in right relationship with him, we'll have access to those springs of living water. So I said the expression of being in the Lord, whether you're talking about the Lord God or the Lord Jesus Christ, is a major theme in Paul's writings. I mentioned it's also out of Ephesians. I think it occurs at least 20 times, if not more than 20 times in this book. If you skim through here, you could mark them in your Bible. Talk about being in the Lord or in Christ or in Him. That expression is referring to being in Him in a somewhat layered sense. I could talk on this for several hours, so I'm only going to give you just a real quick synopsis of what it means to be in the Lord if you're not sure what it means. I think everyone in this building probably is, but it'd be good to reiterate it. You have to get Him in you before you can get in Him. You need to understand what it means to be in Him. Being in Him means being in a relationship with Him. But it also relates to the statement that's made in Romans 6 where Paul said we'd have to be buried with Him by baptism into death. You've got to be in him in the sense that you're buried in him. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Your life's hid there. That means you've put all your trust entirely into him, but you've also wrapped him around you in the sense that he is your covering, and you've also buried yourself in terms of your carnal self in him, and layer after layer of other examples we could give. It starts with being in a spiritual relationship with him, which is what causes him to be in you. If you want God in you or Christ in you, as the scripture says, the hope of glory, that's the Holy Spirit coming within you that brings some part of the disposition and personality of God and of Christ into your life. And the more the Spirit is in you and working in you, the more you'll be in him. Him, in that sense, I'm talking about God or Christ from which the Spirit comes. The more that God's Spirit is in you, the more that you will be in him. The more that the Spirit of Christ is developing in you, the more you'll be in Christ. And so when we get to Scriptures, and this is something a lot of Christendom seems to entirely miss, when we get to Scriptures like 1 Thessalonians 4, which talk about the dead in Christ, those aren't just dead people that believed in Christ. There's a lot of people that died believing in Christ, but they lived a pretty foul life. That's people that died still in Christ. They were dead in Christ and they died, if you want to really get technical about it. They were dead to sin when they died. And so they are now dead, awaiting a resurrection. The dead in Christ shall rise first, it says. But they were dead to self, and that's what merits them, that resurrection. So that's part of what this is talking about. And you could get into a lot of detail with it, but that would be another class entirely just to talk about what it means to be in Christ or to be in God. It starts, as I said, with him being in you, and then he grows in you. You want a really simple way to look at it? The reason I don't use this example a lot is because I think sometimes people could get carried away with it. I think you're wise enough not to do that, you precious saints here. But I think sometimes people get carried away with what I'm about to say, and it causes them fear like they're going to lose their personality or they're going to lose their identity or they're just going to disappear, you know, into nothing. But the more of God's Spirit and Christ's Spirit, those are essentially synonymous. Christ is a perfect reflection of His Father. So when you talk about the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God, in terms of their disposition, you're talking about the same thing. But the more of Christ's Spirit, let's just use Him, because that's who our role model is. The more of Christ's Spirit is developed in you, the more changed you'll become, until eventually you're exactly like Jesus. 
And when you're exactly like Jesus, you are fully in him, meaning that the person you used to be is now covered up by his personality. Now, the reason I say that causes people a little jitter sometimes is they're thinking, well, that'll choke me out. I won't be there anymore. Yes, you will. You'll just be a different person than you were. You'll have changed in areas in your life. And so when people look at you, they'll see Jesus. I don't mean they'll look at you and see Jesus and think they're looking at Jesus. You have skin coloring and hair and things like him, like they think they're identifying Jesus looking at you. But they'll look at you and see Jesus in the exact same way that Jesus meant when he said, you want me to reveal the Father to you? When you see me, you see the Father. He wasn't claiming to be the Father. He was saying, I'm the perfect reflection of the Father. You want to know more about God? You're looking at the perfect image of him. I've been walking around with you for three and a half years, demonstrating God's disposition to you. So when you see me, you're looking at what the Father is in terms of his disposition, in terms of his way of acting and interacting. One of these days when this world sees us, they'll see Jesus. There's a song that said, when this world looks at me, let them only see Jesus. That's what we want. But that doesn't mean our identity is going to get swallowed up. It just means our identity is going to be Listen, this is better. Expanded. We're little feeble creatures right now. You know that, right? Think how expanded your identity will be when you're like Jesus. It's not going to take away from who you are. It's going to make you something far greater than you've ever been. And you'll be the same person, but you'll be a person with a different nature, with different desires, with different motives and impulses than you have right now. And that's what it means to be in Jesus. And so when you read scriptures where some group of individuals or person are being described as being in Christ, and it's talking about somebody at a very high spiritual level, that's what it's talking about. This is somebody that when you look at them, you're seeing Jesus. The dead in Christ were people that, now this is two types of death, people that died physically But they were already dead spiritually to their old selves before they died physically because they were fully in Christ when they were killed. You know what, saints? Whatever my future holds, whether it's shorter than I expected or whether it's longer than what they're presently postulating, whenever I leave this world, I want to leave this world as close to being entirely buried in Jesus as I can be. If you're going to bury me in the ground, I want to be buried in Christ first. If you're going to lay these old bones down, lay them down, knowing that the man you're burying is a man that died fully buried in Christ, that my disposition became the disposition of Christ, my spirit became the spirit of Christ, my thoughts and my attitudes and my actions became perfect reflections of the actions and attitudes and the thoughts of Jesus. Praise his holy name. That's what it is to be a bride member. That's what it is to be an overcomer. And if he allows that in our generation or in the generations to come, I'm going to press as close to that veil as I can get, saints. Wherever my life may presently be in terms of its duration, I'm going to spend the rest of it pressing against the veil. Praise his holy name. I'm going to spend the rest of it with whatever strength he provides for me pushing against the veil. Do you know what veil I'm talking about? There's two different ways you can look at that, especially when you use the statement in Hebrews when it says that Jesus opened up a new and living way for us through the veil, which is, say, his flesh. That's a real deep play on words because Paul had been talking about the tabernacle all through those passages. So their concept of the veil was that veil that was between the holy place and the holy of holies. Then he does this play on words and calls the veil Jesus' flesh. Jesus had to press through the veil of his flesh to press through that veil between the holy place and the holy of holies to press through being in a spiritual condition, which is what the holy place represents, to being in a perfect condition, which was what the holy of holies represents, and being able to enter right into the presence of the Almighty. He had to press through the veil, spiritually speaking, the veil between the holy and holiest, but you can't press through it without pressing through the veil of your own flesh first. This flesh has to be overcome before you'll press through that veil. So I'm going to press against the veil with all the strength I have. If my strength begins to wane, I'm going to tell you, I do know where the source of my strength is, saints. If my physical body starts to weaken, if this chemotherapy does that to me, or if something more dire than the chemotherapy does it to me, I still know where there's a source of strength. And even if my physical strength grows small, my spiritual strength can continue increasing. So thank God for his strength. So as I keep saying, I'm going to say this again and again and again, because it's so critical and it's so often missed. The strength of the Lord is not just something that he exercises toward us in some kind of a way that we just passively receive. Like, I don't have to do anything but sit back and let God work on me, and then eventually I'll be perfect. No, you'll never be perfect if you think that's how it works. 
God worketh in us to willing to do of his good pleasure, as I quoted last time from Philippians, but we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling simultaneously. Meaning that we need to recognize God's doing the work only God can do, and we have to do the work that God's given us the strength to do. And if we don't, then we failed, because God's not going to do all the work. He never intended to do all the work. He will provide all the power necessary, but He's not going to do all the work. Some of that work has to be done by us. So He acts in strength to deliver us. He acts in strength at times to defend us, but He also offers His strength to enable and empower us to act ourselves. And he intends us to be strong enough to do what he's asked of us, and thus his strength is provided in several ways. And actions by him that are exercises of his strength that are, as I have said again many times in this class and the last one, I just feel like I need to keep reiterating, that are beyond our ability. And then in encouraging and empowering us to act in strength ourselves, to use the strength he gives us to stand for him, and to use the strength he gives us to obey his will. I said earlier that God's strength is like a reservoir for those that are in a relationship with him. And we have access to that reservoir for in a relationship with him. But we have to access the reservoir and we have to do something with the strength we receive from it. I've got a quote that I wrote down here when I was studying this out again that just struck me from different commentators that just said something in such a poetic way or such a powerful way that I'm not the type of person that thinks we should not give people credit for the things God has given them. You know, a lot of times people would just reword that themselves in their own way of wording it and not give credit to the person that said it. But I like some of the quotes that I've come across that I think have been certainly inspired of God. David Guzik made this statement about this. He said, God has vast reservoirs of might that can be realized as power in our Christian life, but his might does not work in me as I sit passively. His might works in me as I rely on it and step out to do the work. I can rely on it and do no work. I can do work without relying on it, but both of these fall short. I must rely on his might and then I must do the work. And that is such a succinct and beautiful way of putting it. I just wanted to quote it directly. A real simple example of showing how God does something, but he also provides what's necessary for us to be involved in the work, if not the main people doing the work, is the building of the temple by Solomon. When God called Solomon to build the temple and initially gave the instructions to David, he wasn't going to allow David to build it because of the nature of the things David had done and the blood that was on his hands with all the wars and conflicts he had been in. He wanted a man of peace to build that temple. How sad that the man of peace that had the honor to build the temple becomes such a bad example in terms of his moral life as his life went on. But God chose a man of peace to build that temple, Solomon, and a man who lived in an era of peace during his reign. But he gave David the directions and the instructions and told him what needed to be done, and David passed those on to his son. David didn't tell Solomon in any instruction he gave him that God is going to build the temple for you, Solomon. You'll wake up tomorrow morning and there'll be a temple out there. You know, some people think that's how God works in this temple. I'm pointing to myself, your temple. You'll just wake up one morning and you'll be in a new body and a new nature and everything else. You've got to work on your temple. We are temples, but we got to work on keeping our temple clean. We got to work on keeping our temple accessible to the Holy Ghost. Some people, God makes a temple and then they lock the door so he can't come in anymore. You'll stop being a temple immediately if you do. The only thing that makes you a temple of God is if God can have easy access to your heart. If you're a temple of the Lord, the door has to always be open for God to get into the nooks and crannies of your inner life. And you have to let him in anywhere he wants. Can't be any locked doors in your house. Can't be any closets where you've got a mess that you just don't want him to see. You know, we all have them. Well, maybe you don't. There may be some of you that are so disciplined. There's not a closet in your house that's not perfectly organized and got little boxes. And <laughs> that is my personality. My wife and children will tell you, it's my personality. I would like it to be that way. But entropy is fighting against me all the time, as well as other people. I won't tell you who the other people are, but entropy and other people are constantly warring against me. I'm trying to keep it organized, but I organize a closet door and open it up, and you better be ready for what's coming at you, because some of it may fall right on you. That's how our inner lives are sometimes. We try to pack things into the closet that don't look so good when visitors are coming. Or just clutter, you know. We're just wanting to get out of the way. We don't feel like dealing with and throwing away what needs to be thrown away instead of hoarding it or whatever else it is we're doing. We can't do that with God, saints. You have to let him have access to every tiny nook and cranny of your heart and your soul. You can't hide anything from him. You can hide it if you wanted to. But you don't store things away somewhere, away from God. You need to let him put his hands on every part of your life. There's some parts of our life that are so tender, we don't want him to touch them. But you better let him do it. He knows what he's doing. It could hurt. There's things I've had done to me that hurt to fix something medical things that have been done that it didn't feel so good, but it resolved an issue I had. And God does some of those things too in us. 
Some of the things he does hurt. We don't understand why it had to hurt. And sometimes we may not understand. Even in this whole life, we may not understand. We may go to our rest not knowing why God put us through something. I do believe the words of the old song. We'll understand it better by and by. By and by, when the morning comes, when all the saints of God are gathered home, we'll tell the story, and I hope we can all tell this story, especially if you understand what it means, how we overcome. We'll understand it better by and by. One of these days we'll understand it. There's a lot of things I don't understand. Look, I've had times when I felt like I was as close to God as a man could be at that moment, and I was asking God for understanding on things. He didn't give it to me. I thought, well, Lord, how can I get any closer to you? You Surely you'll tell me right now in this spirit I'm feeling where I just feel like you're standing beside me with your hand on my shoulder. Now, Lord, will you answer my questions? And he didn't, and he still hasn't. And no matter how many times I've pleaded with him, Lord, will you show me why? I don't have to know why. I said it just lately. We don't need to know the why. We need to know the who. If you really know the who, you can live with the why. That's a lot deeper than it sounds in those little simple, almost Sesame Street rhymey words. If you really understand the who, you won't have to understand the why. If you really know who God is, you know he really is good. He really knows what he's doing. He really loves you. You may not think so sometimes when he's putting you through some things, but he really loves you. And he really does know what he's doing. And he really does have the power to do anything he desires to do, which means whatever's going on, he has the power to deal with it or he has the power to use it for a better end in the long run. And there's much more you can know about God than that. But once you understand all those things about the who, the why will become less and less important over time. We still want to know why. We're curious creatures. And we still want to know why when we're faced with things that are shocking to our system that doesn't make sense to us. But the more you understand and come to know the who, the less you'll feel such a desire that I've got to know the why. Job wanted to know the why, but I'm going to tell you what was so powerful about Job. He was willing to lay aside his need to know the why to stay true to the who. He stayed true to the who, to the person, even though he didn't understand why. And everybody around him was trying to get him to break, whether you realize it or not. His three friends sound like they're encouraging in some of their statements, but a lot of their statements were literally undermining his integrity, questioning whether he'd been a man of integrity. Maybe you're going through this because you lost your integrity. That's why Job had to say multiple times different responses, like when he made that statement that is so well known, I made a covenant with my eyes. Why would I look upon a maid? He must have thought they were accusing him of looking at other women besides his wife. So all through that, he was being constantly barraged by his wife telling him, and I'm sure she meant it in love, but she didn't have enough knowledge about the who, you see, when she told him, you ought to just curse God and die, Job. The level of what you're suffering, you need to just curse God because he'll take you out if you do that. I guess she thought he would. There's a lot of people who curse God and they're still alive walking around. But she thought if you curse God, God will bring this to a close. And Job was not going to do it because he understood the who. And he was going to be true to the who. I'm talking about God. So I started saying when God called Solomon through David, for that matter, as the predecessor to that, the person who gave Solomon the blueprint, so to speak, to build the temple, David didn't tell him and neither did God that I'm going to do all of this for you. I'm going to build the temple. He didn't say he was going to build it for him caused that temple to rise from being just a threshing floor, which is what it started out, into being that beautiful facility that Solomon built. Quite the opposite, if you read it. First Chronicles 28.10, David says, Take heed now, he's talking to his son, for the Lord had chosen thee to build a house for the sanctuary. Listen to what he tells Solomon. Be strong and do it. You know what he was telling Solomon? God called you to build a house, but he's not going to build it for you. He'll give you the wisdom to do it. He'll give you the provision of what you need to do it. But I'm going to tell you what, you're going to have to do the building. You're going to have to be strong. It's certain that Solomon could have never built God's house if God hadn't provided the blueprint for the design, if God hadn't given Solomon the wisdom to build it the way God wanted, the knowledge and understanding for that matter, if he didn't provide the necessary materials. What if Solomon was so poor he couldn't afford all that cedar from Lebanon? Do you realize how valuable that is, that cedar coming down from Lebanon? That's valuable wood bringing all those great cedars of Lebanon down. And they didn't use Shedem wood like they used for the tabernacle in the wilderness. They used cedar to build the interior portions of that temple and great blocks of stone that took up the framework, the skeletal work of that building and all the riches that were invested in it, the silver and gold and embroidery work and other things that went in that made that temple such a massively valuable structure. If God had not provided Solomon through his father David's conquering of those nations with the kind of treasure storehouse he had and that he continued to provide for him, Solomon could have never built the temple. 
So it wasn't that Solomon did it on his own fuel, on his own power. Solomon was provided the blueprints. He didn't make them up. Solomon was given the exact directions of how God wanted that temple built. He didn't come up with it on his own. He didn't have to design it. God designed it. Solomon was provided the riches to be able to purchase the products he needed to build exactly what God wanted built. But God didn't move the cedars of Lebanon down there and lay them out in a nice row for him right on the threshing floor of Ornan where they could just start working. Someone had to go up and cut the cedars down. Someone had to plane them out to get them ready to be used in a construction project. Someone had to transport them all the way down to Jerusalem. Somebody, once they got there, had to be skilled enough craftsmen and carpenters and others, masons with the blocks, to put it all together the way God wanted it. It's like they did the tabernacle in the wilderness. There was a lot of work going on. There was work that Solomon was doing. There was work that the laborers under Solomon were doing. God provided the ability to do it. God provided materials, but they had to do something with those materials. And that is a very important lesson, even as it relates forward into our spiritual life in the New Covenant. God gives us the materials, but we have to build something with them. Think of all the truths God has given us as a people, saints. We have to do something with those truths. Think of the level of the Spirit God has given in this assembly. Thank you, Lord. But we have to do something with it. We don't just come in to be entertained and to sit back and say, doesn't this feel nice? It's such a warm and inviting environment, and it feels so nice to feel the tingles come over me when the song starts or whatever. Those are all secondary emotional feelings that the Spirit is causing you to have. But the Spirit is a power source, and it's not just there to make you feel good. It's not just about feeling something. It's about being changed by something and using what you've been given as a source of strength to live for God. The very same kind of exhortation that was given to Solomon, it, you all should remember this, we just not long ago finished going through the book of Haggai, was given to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, and to the people of Judah when they were called to rebuild the temple after its destruction. Remember what it said in Haggai 2.4? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Yosedek, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land. And this is why I wanted to read this. It's not just telling them to be strong, just like it said with Solomon, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. There's several important layers there. He's not only encouraging them to be strong, he's telling them that you need to be strong and work. I'm not going to work for you. You're going to have to build this temple. But I'm going to be with you. That's all that matters, saints. If God's with us and we're doing his work, he'll take care of the rest. If God's called us to do a work and we're doing the work he's called us to do, he'll be with us. And if he's with us and we continue in doing the work he's calling us to do in our integrity and according to the blueprint he's given us and in the right spirit, we can't help but to accomplish the work because anything that we do, if God's with us, we can get accomplished. It's something that he desires to have done. So God provides what only he can provide, but the work still has to be done by those that he provides power to. In the story of Joshua, this is right at the transitional point between the changing of the guard. Moses was going off the scene, and now Joshua was coming on the scene as the leader of the children of Israel. And multiple times, God exhorts Joshua to be strong and of a good courage. I've heard people quote that many times, and I've heard some powerful sermons given. I heard Brother Glenn Goodwin give a powerful sermon breaking down those statements about being strong and of good courage that were given to Joshua. When you look at these kind of statements, don't miss the fact that God intends us to do something with that strength. I'm just going to read just three or four verses, starting around the sixth verse. The sixth verse of the first chapter, God says, Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people, children of Israel, Shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them? Only be thou strong and very courageous. Now notice what he says next. That thou mayest observe to do according to all the law. In other words, you need to be strong because I expect you to keep my commandments, to carry out my requirements. You're going to have to keep the law. You're going to have to be strong to keep the law. Now that's important. A lot of times people read through this and miss that. They focus in just on the statements about being strong. But you've got to be strong for a reason. Joshua had to be strong so that he wouldn't collapse under the weight of that nation. Moses almost did a few times. The terrible weight of the burden of carrying the children of Israel on his shoulders. Joshua had to be strong for that reason, to be strong enough to lead that people. He had to be strong as an example to the people. A leader has to be stronger than those he's leading. You may not be stronger in every area. I'm not physically stronger than every person that I've pastored. There's probably people that I've pastored that are physically stronger than I am. I may not be mentally stronger than every person that I've pastored. They may be people with a higher IQ than I have. 
But I have to be as strong or stronger in my relationship with the Lord if I'm going to be a leader of God's people. I certainly can't be weaker. What kind of leader would I be? So when God was telling Joshua, be strong, he was telling him to be strong because this is going to be a hard job. And you wonder why he repeated it so many times. Maybe it's because of all these layers. He was telling him, you're going to have to be strong enough to stand for me in front of these people and be the right example and not to cave. And part of that's why he says that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded thee, turn not from it to the right hand or the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. Notice what God's telling him to be strong about. You're going to have to be strong enough to keep my word. You're going to have to be strong enough to be an example of obedience to me and an example of righteousness before the people that you're leading, because they're my people and their leaders ought to be examples to them. Saints, I want to be an example to you. I told you when I got this diagnosis, I'm going to be an example to you in life or death. In my life, I want to be an example to you, but if my death is what is approaching, I want to be an example in the way I die and in the integrity I hold as I go through that process, if that's where it goes. We have to be examples in every way, saints. The people of God have to be examples of one another, but leaders in God's kingdom have a special responsibility to be examples in their action and in their attitudes. He goes on to say, Then thou shalt have good success. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Now, if you want to be creative, you might take each one of those statements and apply it to some of the things I'm talking about. I'm not claiming that's what God was intending, but he was certainly telling Joshua, you're going to have to be strong to bear this load of the people. You're going to have to be strong as an example for the people of keeping my word and being faithful. And then you're going to have to be strong enough to be able to go into the land and take it, which was his primary calling right at that moment, was to lead the children of Israel over the Jordan into the promised land and go through battle after battle after battle until he'd conquered that land. That would take strength and courage. And so in all those different ways, he had to be strong. So no matter how great the conflict, saints, we can fight forward without falling back if we're sure of the strength of the one who's going with us into the battle. If we're sure God is with us and we're sure God is a source of strength for us, we can keep moving forward. A song that says, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. It's literally taken right out of this 10th verse, this 6th chapter of Ephesians. That first phrase is, Be not afraid to stand for the right. If you dwell in darkness or walk in the light, O children of God, be strong in his might. That's a song that is lifted right out of the words of this sixth chapter of Ephesians and this call for us to be strong. In the Old Covenant period, near the end of the book of Deuteronomy is where this statement is said in one of its clearest ways. In the first four verses of the 20th chapter of Deuteronomy, God is telling the priests who are just like the ministry under the new covenant that they're expected to exhort the men of Israel when they're going into battle so that they wouldn't enter into the fray thinking that they were alone and they would realize that God is going to go with them. They would encourage him. It'd be almost like a hate to use this phrase, but it'd be almost like a spiritual pep rally for the men of Israel when they're going into battle. The priests were to go out there and tell them, God's with you, brethren. God's with you, men. He's going to go with you into this battle. He's the one that called you to this conflict. And if he called you to the conflict, he'll go with you in the conflict. If he called you to the conflict and you're going into that war zone, he'll go with you. He called you to go there. And if you're going where he called you, he'll go with you. It says in Deuteronomy 21 to 4, when thou goest out to battle against thine enemies and seest horses and chariots and a people more than thou, be intimidating, wouldn't it? You look out there and you see they've got better arms and armor than we have, at least looks like it. They've got more horses. They've got chariots. There's a lot more of them. Be not afraid of them. And there's a very good reason. For the Lord, thy God, is with thee which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. He said that on the end because all you got to do is look back at how he brought them up and you'd have to realize there's no power that can stand against him. And it shall be when you are come nigh unto the battle that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people. This is what the ministry have to do in a spiritual sense in our day. And shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, you approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts be faint, fear not, and do not tremble. Neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Bless his holy name. How could you fear if you know God is with you? What enemy is big enough to fight God? If he's going with you, that's David's concept of it. David wasn't comparing himself with Goliath like, I think I'm skilled enough to defeat Goliath. 
David had had some confidence given him by his battle with the lion and the bear, though, that gave him the courage to face Goliath. And perhaps down in his heart, he thought, I think I can beat Goliath, but I know why he thought he could beat Goliath. Because God will go with me. I'm defending his honor. That's really what he said to those men. He said, don't you understand he's blaspheming God? He said, you're going to stand here and take this? God is being offended by this. You should take a stand against him. And David's conception of the battle was not so much that any one of us are capable of defeating this giant. It's that this giant has called God out. And so if I go out to fight him, God will be going out with me and no one can defeat God. Amen? And notice David had to fight the battle, saints. God went with him into that battle, there's no doubt. But David had to choose one of those five smooth stones that he gathered out of that brook, all of which is typological of things, the ministry, the five offices, and so on. But he had to choose one of those five smooth stones. He had to wind up his sling. He had to be courageous enough to go onto that battlefield. And you know, my favorite part of the whole story of David and Goliath is not... Now listen, this is the most important part as far as the Israelites, was not when that stone struck him in the head. It was not even when David went over there to make sure he was dead and picked up his sword and cut his head off to make sure the stone didn't knock him out cold and he'd get back up. My favorite part, hands down, I see Sister Gail smiling at me, so I know she knows. My favorite part, hands down, is when it said that David ran at Goliath. I feel the chills run over me every time I read that. David wasn't standing there saying, all right, Lord, are you with me? David already knew what needed to be done. Someone had provoked and blasphemed the holy God of heaven. And David knew, I am not going to let this stand. That young man did not stand there and wait for Goliath. He ran at the giant. Most of Israel not only was not waiting for Goliath, they were hiding from him. But David was running at him. And it's one of those things, just like the story of how he took that lion by the beard that I think are so powerful about David. This was a young man of great courage and strength, saints. And that's why earlier I mentioned David's great discouragement and fear he was experiencing after the raid of the Amalekites. And I said, here's a man of great strength. You look at him before this. Look at him after this. He was in a very low depression. I don't just mean that in a state of depression. I mean a low place in the ground. He was pretty low down when the Malachites had raided and taken that. He probably thought, we're doing so good, we're defeating our enemies, and we're the raiders around here, you know. And all of a sudden, the Malachites came in and did tremendous damage and caused all that psychological damage. And David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He got his strength back by fastening himself to God, getting his mind on the Lord. So notice in some of these passages that the battles that Israel fought, and that's just as true, by the way, of our spiritual battles, were a tandem operation that was carried out by God and the Israelites. God said he'd go with them. And there's times God did things that caused them to win battles that they couldn't do, causing the sun to stand still, to keep it light enough till they could defeat their enemies. That's so mind-boggling. It's hard to understand from the standpoint of physics and other things that could even occur, but God did it. God swallowed up the Egyptians in the Red Sea, didn't he? They didn't have to fight the Egyptians. They didn't have to strike a single blow in direct combat with those Egyptian soldiers. They were swallowed up by the Red Sea, by the power of God. God brought the walls of Jericho down. But by the way, they had to then go in and take the city. He didn't cause the walls to fall on all the troops and everybody inside was dead. They just walked in and took over. They had to go over those walls as they fell and get into that city and fight the battle. There were times God used miraculous events to do things that defeat the enemies of Israel. But you'll find out if you study the Bible, most of the time when they were faithful in their relationship with God, they still had to fight. God just went with them. God made sure they'd won the battle. God stood with them. So he went with them and fought against their enemies. But in most of the cases, they did not passively sit by and watch him win the battle. They had to engage in the battle. They had to fight in the strength of their knowledge that God was with them as well as in the strength God was providing them. So God fought for Israel, but Israel had to fight as well, didn't they? And that's right at the heart of what I'm trying to get at with this use of strength, why I'm spending so much time on it, because there's no point, this is going to sound very strange, I know, but there's no point in even discussing the armor of the Lord unless we really understand where the strength is going to come from to wear it, where the strength is going to come from to put it on. You could talk about the armor of the Lord, get everybody in here fired up about putting it on, and if none of us were strong enough to put it on and keep it on, what productive was there about getting everybody fired up about putting it on? Nobody's strong enough to lift the sword of the Spirit. Nobody's strong enough to lift the shield of faith. What in the world? We've got to make sure we have the strength. And I want you to have a really deep conception of what this strength is talking about and how it's a tandem strength. Strength of God used in ways we can't do that are beyond us and the strength of God given to us to be used on his behalf to fight for him. I really like this other quote that I came across that at the end of our class last time I was talking about the old ship of Zion that is being battered right now, but it's still strong enough to make its destination. 
F.F. Bruce said this pretty poignantly. He said, the church sails with her high admiral, not in a pleasure yacht, but in a man of war. In other words, the church isn't a pleasure yacht. This isn't a cruise ship. This is a warship. And we have to understand that. That's why we have to be strong. That's why we have to be armed and armored. Church is not a cruise ship, saints. It's just casually making its way along the coast where the weather is beautiful and there's never any trouble and there's never any travail and you're being endlessly entertained and carnally stimulated and every comfort is provided for. This is a warship. The church is a warship and we're, as members of the church, to be fitted for battle. And this warship is intended to stay above the spiritual waterline of this world while it's engaged in conflict with everything that's carnal. And that means we're going to be under constant duress and pressure and conditions. We're going to take great blows and we're going to endure terrible storms, saints. We're going to go through crashing waves that we feel like might just swallow us up and drown us entirely. But if this old ship and each one of us is fitted with the armor of God, it can stand any tempest shock. 